Shay Kurdekol, you're the CEO of Victim Voice, an app that provides a legally admissible ways for victims to document abuse incidents. A year ago, exactly, you told back in America your story of abuse that started when you were a child. Today, on November 25, as we republished this episode, I wanted to reach out for an update on Victim Voice and on the work you've been doing. Well, we've been very busy, um, fortunately and unfortunately. COVID has really provided a unique environment where victims are trapped in their homes with no real way to get out or very limited means to get out. Uh, The courts in a lot of cases are physically shut down and uh, most of them have gone on a virtual basis. It's backed things up, made resources more limited. Uh, Organizations have had to get very creative on how to deal with getting victims out Um, The law enforcement officers that I've spoken with have said that while the number of reports has decreased, the severity of the incidents by the time they do report are pretty much at the life or death stage. So we know that the incidents of abuse are have increased exponentially. And we've seen that in evidence of the usage in our application as well. How do you explain this surge during the pandemic? Well, think about it. You have people who um, probably have lost their jobs. Um, Money is tight. The uh, Feeding America saw a a double increased need in food distribution uh, for people needing food. Um, You have people that normally are being watched all the time when they're when their spouses or significant others are home and now they're forced to be home all the time so whereas uh, an abuser may have gone to work or you know left the house for any length of period of time that was kind of that opportunity for a victim to be able to talk to a a nonprofit and put together a safety plan to get out or be able to just have some downtime where they're not being, um, you know, controlled and, and abused. They don't have that anymore. They don't have the luxury of having any downtime at all. And if the victim is also uh, employed, now they must act professional in a space where they're being abused. So not only is there the trauma and the, um, the stress of being abused, but there's the trauma and the stress, uh, stress of COVID on top of the trauma and stress of trying to act professional when your home life is a wreck. Well, we were looking at usage numbers. Now, we don't have visibility on who our clients are because all their information is encrypted. We don't have visibility on the information that they're putting into the app. Again, that's all encrypted. But what we do have visibility on is hits onto our database and from what state. So we can see at the state level. And we saw six states between January and February. And then we compared it to March and April. We had six states in the U.S. that had triple digit percentage increases Utah saw a 450% increase in usage. 
And we had over 30 states that had double digit percentage increases as well, New Jersey being one of those. Uh, we are finding creative ways ourselves to make sure that no one is left behind and having access to this application. Um, while there is a charge, an uh, annual license fee, uh, we have been very blessed with a lot of donations. And those donations mean that when someone reaches out to us through social media, we are able to provide them with a license at no charge. We recently joined forces with an organization called the Halo app and created the Victim's Voice Halo Fund. What that means is with every annual donation, which is $40 a year, $10 of that donation goes into the Victim's Voice Halo Fund. And that fund will provide up to a $1,000 zero interest loan with up to six months to pay it back for any victim that needs cash to be able to get out of the circumstances that they're in. Um, when that loan is paid back, that loan money, that paid back money goes back into the fund. So that fund will continue to grow so that we're able to provide more cash over the long term to more victims that need to get out. And this is really important because almost every victim of domestic violence is also a victim of financial abuse meaning that either they have no access to their funds or all their funds are being watched and they must explain every expenditure. Sherry, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to add? Uh, one thing I would like to add is if you are able, uh, we are going to be running a special promotion for, dona for donated cards starting Black Friday through Giving Tuesday called Paying It Forward. So you can visit us on the web at victimsvoice.app. That's victimsvoice.app. And also, if you are able, please donate to your local shelter. Uh, their funding has been cut by our current administration, and they are also really, really in need of resources. So please donate if you're able. They are going to need you when all this is over. Thank you. This is well noted. And the link will also be in this episode notes. Sherry, thank you. And now we are going to listen to your story. If you're tired of arguing with strangers on the internet, try talking with one of them in real life. Welcome to Back in America, the podcast. Before we start, I should let you know that we are going to be talking about sexual abuse and that it might be disturbing to some of you. So Sherry, do you want to tell me a bit more about this app? Sure. It is, like you said, it is a web-based digital diary that allows victims to record each incident of their abuse. It encrypts the data, stores it permanently off device, and the output report meets the legal standards of court admissibility here in the U.S. Okay. And how did this idea come about? Back in 2016, my then 10-year-old daughter built an anti-bullying mobile app for her science fair project. It was known as the Zebra app, and it stood for Zoe Ending Barriers in Reporting Adversity. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> she was 10 years old. She won the science and engineering fair in our county. And we were invited to speak at a developers conference in California. They flew our whole family out there. And Zoe and I spoke. When we were speaking about the app, the Q&A session at the end really was the moment when my two worlds collided. I had worked in technology for a long time, but I'm also the survivor of child abuse and domestic violence. While I had put all that behind me, mm -hmm. it was really the first moment when, you know, the, like I said, those worlds collided and it, it dawned on me that you could actually solve social issues with the right technology. Wow. And why did Zoe decide to work on, on bullying? She had a friend that was getting picked on at school. She's not a coder, but she is a problem solver. And if there's a problem that, that she sees that isn't being addressed or isn't being appropriately addressed, she'll find a way to fix it. So she did. Good. Well, you must have been so proud. Absolutely. So can you tell me a bit more about yourself now? What, you know, what kind of childhood did you have? Uh, what did your parents do? Do you have any sibling? Where did you grow up? So I'm a Navy brat. Well, I like to say I'm now I'm just a brat, <laughs> <laughs> but I've moved 36 times. Wow. Yes. All pretty much along the eastern side of the United States. My father was a nuclear engineer. And while he was a brilliant man, he was also a monster. My abuse started very young when I was a toddler. I lost my virginity at age two at the hands of my father. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and grew up in that, that type of household. I had a sister when I was three years old who only lived 12 weeks. And after that time, my father decided that I was not enough and they wanted to adopt more kids. So I have two sisters and a brother that were also adopted. Um, and brought into, you know, from the frying pan into the fire. So they're all younger than me. And I still stay in touch with my brother, but I have lost touch with my two sisters. Do you know if they've been abused also? Absolutely. All of us. In fact, it was my, the middle sister who ultimately turned my father in when I was 17 years old. And then he was arrested. How did your mother react to that? It's very interesting. That's always the question that I get. Where was your mom? Why didn't she do something? But when you're being abused, and I know a lot of, of victims don't even self-identify that what's happening to them mm. is abuse. And my mother was married fairly young. She was 20. She had me when she was 21. And how could you possibly imagine that the person that you fell in love with, the person that you married, do anything like that to your own child, your own flesh and blood. Denial is a very powerful tool that all people use when faced with especially domestic violence or child abuse. So what you're saying is that she might have known but just didn't want to know it? Or do you think she did not even know? I don't think she knew the extent of what was going on. She absolutely know, knew that things weren't right in the house. Um, 
my father was verbally, emotionally, psychologically, physically, and sexually abusive to all of us. Mm. Um, he did not discriminate, my brother included. Wow. When did you realize that what was happening to you was abuse? The first time that I ever realized that something was wrong is, I don't even remember the year, but there was a made-for-TV movie. Ted Danson was in it. It was called Something About Amelia. And my father refused to let me watch the movie. And I saw enough of the previews that I got an idea of what it was about. And I just remember thinking, wow, what's happening to me? I always felt very uncomfortable, mm -hmm. but couldn't put words to what was happening. And that was the first time when the realization really hit me that this is wrong. This not only doesn't feel right, but it's wrong. So what... I mean, how did it take place? What happened? What kind of abuse are we talking about? Um, ask that question again. So do, do you want to get a bit more concrete about the details of what your father did to you? So there were instances. I, I have a lot of gaps in my memory. Most of my childhood is gone. But there are incidents that I remember, such as um, I remember not rinsing out. We used to drink milk. Mm -hmm. And I didn't rinse the glass out. I put it in the sink because I felt like that was the right thing to do was to put the dirty glass into the sink. We didn't have a dishwasher back then. And, but I didn't rinse the milk out and it got hard in the glass. And when my father came home, my punishment was that he slammed my head into a wall and threw a toothbrush at me. And I was made to clean the entire kitchen floor with a toothbrush. Um, there were, you know, just constant instances of um, every, pretty much every night I slept with my arms tucked in very close to my body. I always slept face down in bed and I always slept with every muscle about as tense as it possibly could um, because pretty much every night he'd come in and crawl under the covers and, you know, proceed to have his way with me. My My body didn't belong to me. Which is raping you. Uh, yeah, ultimately. Yeah. And that lasted then from the time you were two until 17. 17, yes. Yes. The police came to my high school and escorted me into the office and proceeded to ask me a bunch of questions, which I immediately went into shock. Uh, I don't remember any of the questions. I just remember being taken from my classroom into the office. And then I remember sitting in the back of a police car, going to the police station. But I don't remember anything else. Do you think at the time you felt relieved? I th No, that wasn't the feeling that I had. The feeling was terror. Um, what was going to happen to my family now? My mom had a job. I don't remember what job she had, but he was the breadwinner. And mm -hmm. there were four of us in a pretty nice neighborhood in Virginia. And, you know, were we all going to be thrown into an orphanage? Were we going to have to move? What was going to happen to us now? Um, you know, I had always dreamed of having someone come and rescue me. But when someone came and rescued me, that wasn't what I felt like. Right. That I was being rescued. 
Wow, that's interesting. Did so? You said you always dreamt of someone rescuing you. Um, one might ask, why didn't you run away? I, mean, I did. I ran away once, and then the family where I ran away, I was too embarrassed to tell them what was really happening. I just told them that you know it wasn't it wasn't right at home, but you know, so many teenagers aren't happy with what's going on at home, sure. even when you have the perfect life. Yeah. Um, so they sent me back home and, you know, I had a gun put to the side of my head and was told that if I ever did that again, you know, the trigger would be pulled. That's a little dissuasive from running away again. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Looking back at that, do you wish you would have done things differently? I don't think I was capable of doing anything differently. Um, you know, when that's what you grow up with and that's all you know, and I, I always say about anything, whether it's work, um, you know, when I was going through a divorce and a custody battle, um, when I was going through a any kind of situation, the unknown is always worse than knowing what was going to happen if it was bad. And so not knowing what would happen to me, would, would I end up on the streets? Would mm. I end up being homeless and hungry. You just don't know. And so you cling on to what you do know, even if it's very uncomfortable. Gosh. So at 17, the cops come to your school. Um, what happened? You're taken away? My father was arrested. I was taken home. Um, I'm assuming. I don't remember, but, you know, I ended up at home. Um, and my mother, for fear of what was going to happen to her family, begged the courts to allow my father to only spend weekends in jail. So he got six weekends in jail and they came with a van and picked him up and took him to work every day. And he spent the nights in, you know, in jail. And that, that was all he got, you know, back then there's not a registry for sex offenders. So he's a free man living in North Carolina. Oh. Yeah. Did the the abuse continue at the time? Or? Well, after that, I cut ties completely. Um, my two sisters chose to stay in touch with my father because he was very good at mailing checks. Mm. And But I refused. I used to send the checks back in the mail, and he kept sending them to me. And so I finally burned one enough that I, I left enough of it that he could tell it was the check, and I mailed the ashes and the remaining check back to him. Um, never putting anywhere on there any of my handwriting because I didn't want him to have my handwriting. Mm. And so that was it. I literally just, I, I, well, I guess figuratively, just turned my back and walked away. And So what did you do? You were 17. I finished high school. Um, the day after I graduated from high school, I you know, had dated somebody through my senior year. and. He was from this area here in the Philadelphia area. And so he wanted to move back home to work for his dad's business. And so I moved up here with him. Pretty young. And that's yeah. the guy you are with today, right? Uh, no, no, it is not. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've been through a divorce, <laughs> ah. custody battle. I have a, an older daughter also so, with and a granddaughter. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I mean, how could you ever be with a man after what happened to you? So when you grow up with that kind of environment, love is equated with attraction, whether it's something that you want or not. 
And so very often women who have been abused tend to attract themselves to people who are very charming, very controlling, because at first the, you know, oh, I love you and I don't want anyone else looking at you, that that level of jealousy is flattering in the Mm. early days. And then very quickly it becomes very controlling because that's really what abuse is about. It's the control. It has nothing to do with sex. Has nothing to do with love. It has everything to do with control. And, but when you are the victim, you see it as being equated to love. So you confuse love with control. Mm. And when you grow up in that kind of environment, I, I can attest that it's a train wreck of relationships afterward. Almost every single relationship that I had ended in being an abusive relationship whether it was emotional, physical, whatever. Mm-hmm. Is that what you see among the women you meet? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So how did you manage to step outside of that vicious uh, circle? There were a couple of defining moments. Um, I like to say that Freddy Krueger and Lee Iacocca saved my life. <laughs> All right. Tell us more. <laughs> So the movie Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. there is a scene in the movie when Glenn and Nancy, that's the boyfriend and girlfriend main characters in the movie, they're standing on a bridge in a park and Glenn is eating a sandwich or something and he talks to Nancy about, do you know about these dreamwalkers? And they go into their dreams and they uh, turn their back on the monster and walk away taking back all the power. And I remember watching that scene and it was as if a ton of bricks hit me and it dawned on me that although I wasn't at that time in an abusive relationship, I was still giving power to every one of my abusers because I was constantly thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I was constantly letting it define who I was and what I was doing and how I saw the world. And I knew that I had to take back my power but I had no idea what that would look like. So, you know, people work with mentors and coaches all the time. I hadn't heard either one of those terms before, but I knew that I needed help. If somebody gave you all the the latest and greatest tools, every tool that you could imagine top of the line to build a house, and they said to you, here's every tool you're ever going to need. Now go build a house. You wouldn't know what mm, to do. Absolutely. So that's where I was. I had all the tools in front of me. I just didn't know. I didn't have any instruction manuals. I didn't know what to do. So in comes Lee Iacocca. I envisioned the strongest, most powerful person that I could imagine. And at the time, he ruled the auto industry. He was power. He walked into any space and commanded the room. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I needed him to help me, but who am I? I'm I'm not going to get anywhere close to him. So he became my virtual mentor every time I was faced with a decision. and, And I would think about what was really the difference between Lee and me. Right. And when you peel away all the layers, what it came down to for me was he was fearless and I was fearful. All the time. So every time I was faced with making a decision, 
-hmm. I would think to myself, well, how would Lee handle this? And I would stand up a little taller and I would take a deep breath and I would just make that decision. And then I would kind of, you know, flinch like, oh my gosh, what are the consequences now? You know, but after a while, it got easier and easier. And the question of what would Lee do became less and it was more, what should I do? And then what will I do? That's incredible. So you didn't have any uh, therapies? Oh, I had a whole lot of therapy. Okay. So that was on top of that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That was your personal recipe. Yes. Uh, While the therapy taught me was, I I liken it to, was the instruction manuals on what each of the tools can do. Okay. It was up to me to design the house and And build the house. And that's where your little recipe came into play. Yes. So a lot of the memories that I do have are almost as if I were floating above my body and was watching them happen. It took a long time and a lot of therapy, and that's really where the therapy came in, is to actually reconnect my mind with my body. Um, When that happened, it was a tailspin downward because for the first time, I was reliving and refeeling all those raw emotions, and it, it took time to rebuild out of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably why a lot of people don't want to go there because, you know, you're going from a, a horrible situation, but you're functioning into mm-hmm. all of a sudden now you're dealing with it. And it's as if somebody just peeled off several layers of your skin and your your raw nerve endings are out there. And it takes a while to regrow that skin again. And then mm-hmm. to be able to, like a snake, shed that skin and be done with it. And I still look at people today when I started this company. Um, I've never formed a corporation before in my life. And it's terrifying. (laughs) So I was really just surround myself with as many smart people Mm -hmm. as I can. And sometimes it's fake it till you make it. And then fill in the gaps with knowledge and, and help. And, uh, so yeah, I want to come back to your to your company, but maybe uh, tell me, did you you know I read that forgiving is very important. Uh, you know, it's a way it's a way to put behind you uh, your past life. It's a way to regain your own personal life. And yet, you know, I cannot imagine how anybody can forgive this kind of you know behavior onto oneself. What about you? What's your experience to forgiveness? I have embraced forgiveness 100%. I will never forgive what was done to me. Mm-hmm. I will never forget, um, outside of the memory gaps, uh, what was done to me. And that's important. What was done to me? I was not a participant in that. Mm-hmm. What I did forgive was myself for the guilt mm. and the shame and the embarrassment and the fear, and losing a huge chunk of my life. You know, I'm not even halfway, over half my life, that's what it was. But I have learned to forgive myself for being who I was and how I felt, um, and embrace who I am and how I feel. Mm-hmm. So you told me the other day that uh, 
your PTSD was now old enough. It's it's old enough to vote. It's old enough to vote. That's it. <laughs> uh, how did how did you know that you're past it? How could other people say, okay, I think I'm also past that stage where I can start to deal with it? There is a, a a funny turning point, um, and when I I left a relationship that was not good. It was the last of the relationships that was not good. And I actually snuck out of the relationship and bought a house and moved out while this individual was working. And uh, when he came home, all my stuff was gone. I was gone. And I had bought a house. I moved in. It was, it's an old house. It was mm -hmm. built in, in 1930. And the gentleman who I bought the house from, he was the only occupant in the house. So it was very dated. You know, the, the brown sculptured shag carpet and the double line drawstring curtains. Oh and, you yeah. know, <laughs> <laughs> I see it. A lot yeah. of floral in the house, you know, wallpaper and otherwise. But the curtains, I, I ripped all the carpet out after I bought the house. And I bought this as a single mom. So, you know, I'm very proud of that moment. And that was one of the defining moments. But the other one was, this is kind of funny and embarrassing at the same time, but I closed all the curtains and I love to paint. And so I hadn't moved any furniture in yet. I had ripped all the carpet out and I had bought, I love fiesta wear. I love color. And so I had bought about six different colors of paint uh, to paint all the different rooms. And I took all my clothes off and painted in the complete nude because it was my house and I could do it. And could do I was, you wanted. I, yes. It, it was your space. It was my space. There was nobody in there. And that was a way for me to be at my most vulnerable while feeling completely safe. That was kind of the line in the sand that said, nobody is ever going to cross this with me again. I had paint in places. Nobody should have paint. <laughs> I'm sure. So let, let's talk about that safe space. Did you manage to build a safe space for yourself today? I, I do. I have a safe space both physically and mentally, um, but I still do things to keep myself safe. Mm. I just recently purchased a product called Palm Peace of Mind, and I travel a lot, and I'm in places that I don't recognize, and I'm in those places in the dark, and so... You know, that product is an easy way for me to... to what is it? It's called Peace of Mind, uh, Palm. And it's a, you push it and it, certain pushes will do certain things. So like I can send a text to my husband okay. and let him know there's an emergency. Or if I, you know, push it another way, it puts me in connection, kind of like OnStar for your body. Yeah. Um, I've taken self-defense courses. Okay. I have enough weapons in the house, no guns, but I have enough weapons in the house that anyone who comes in meaning to do harm to me or my family um, will not leave in the same way they came in. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so well, years later, you are now funding this company yes. whose purpose is to help other women. And men. And men, you're right. Anyone. Yeah, victim of abuse to document uh, what's happening to them. Does that, I mean, do you feel now that this is pretty much the only company that you could have done? Do you feel that you had to work in that space? This 
company found me because after Zoe's app, um, I built a prototype in 2016 and I wasn't convinced that this was the thing for me. In fact, for the next two years, I took my prototype everywhere trying to get people to disprove it, Mm. to tell me that it wouldn't work, that somebody else had already done it, that it was nice, but not viable as a business and really tried hard. I mean, I had a full-time well-paying job (laughs) and really tried hard not to have this be what it is today, trying to get everyone to disprove it. Um, But it just kept getting better and better. People would say, oh yeah, this is really great. But if you do this, it'll be a little bit better. Or, well, have you thought about doing it this way? Or, you know, just constantly giving me little tweaks until I finally just realized that, okay, this is needed. There isn't anything else out there like just like this. It fills a a particular voided area that is crucially important. And then I, yeah, I had no choice at that point. It it became my destiny. Do you have any success stories already? We just had our first case go to court last week. Um, I haven't heard back from the attorney yet, find out what the results are. Uh, But we launched the product five months ago. We're already live in 30 states. We have a district attorney's office out of Corpus Christi that has purchased uh, cards for anyone who needs a license and can't afford it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mercer County Prosecutor's Office here in New Jersey is uh, signing the deal this week. Wow. Um, So, yeah, we're off and running. That's amazing. So what advice would you give? people listening this, um, to this podcast who might be victim of abuse themselves. Looking back at your experience, you know, what would you like to share? There's a few things. Uh, first of all, if and when you plan to leave, you need to be careful. That is the most dangerous time for a victim because, like I said before, it's all about control. And when the abuser realizes that they don't have control anymore, they get desperate to regain that control. So safety planning is crucial. We're a tool, but we're not the resource. And so it's really important that they surround themselves with knowledge and resources. Um, It's also very difficult and very confusing for victims. Every state is different. Every area is different. How people are approached is different. Um, The court systems are different. So just educate yourself as much as possible uh, to what you need to do, but safety plan. Also know that pets are oftentimes used against a victim that, you know, if you leave, I'm going to kill your pet. Um, You know, just a myriad, they're used in abuse, all sorts of things. In the U.S. now, there's 33 states that allow for a protective order to include a pet. And there are so many organizations that will either take a pet or find a foster home for your pet. So again, educate yourself with what's available and document absolutely everything. One of the first things to go with a victim is memory. And the court systems, your friends, no one will believe what you've been through. It is unbelievable that people are put through this level of trauma. And so 
you so ha- what kind of documentation, what kind of memo should people write down? Well, that's specifically the void that we fee- that, yeah. that that we do. It's not just a matter of, uh, you know, he pushed me down the stairs, but what were you arguing about? What were the circumstances around? Were there other people around? Were there any other witnesses? You know, did he hit you upside the head with a lamp? Because that's considered a weapon now and weapons charges can be brought. Did he threaten to harm you, your pets, your friends, any of that? Um, all sorts of questions what in there. What was the weather like? All these sorts of questions yeah. that need to be addressed. You know, I don't even know what I had for lunch last week. How am I expected to remember what happened to me and all the details surrounding it if I'm under trauma and duress? I can't. Sure. How people victim of abuse hear of your application, you know, how do they know it exists? We are very active on social media. We also, because we license direct to the victim and most victims can't afford or don't have access to their money, that's why we have our partner program. And we are building that partner program um, with organizations that are victim-facing. So police departments, uh, legal firms, nonprofits, all those types um, where we will sell what equates to like a gift Mm. card. pays for the license for the year. Um, it's less than $40 a year, but you know, having that, we have a, a gifting program. We're coming up on the holidays and black Friday to giving Tuesday. We're actually lowering the price of the license if you'll gift it. Mm-hmm. So you can either gift it to an organization or you can just donate it as a gift. And then if someone reaches out to us, then we will make sure that they get that license. Okay. You mentioned the police department. I was reading that depending on the states, uh, you know, the reception you will get as an abuser, as an abused person, is not always idyllic. No. And so what, what can you tell us about that? And in New Jersey, I mean, it really varies. You know, we, we one of our, or our law enforcement advisor is the lieutenant of the Morris Township Police Department. She's amazing. She is a survivor herself. So she understands not only the complexity of the emotional part behind it, but even for her as a law enforcement um, professional, struggled to get through the system. Mm. So for victims that come in to her station, they are treated with the utmost respect and believability and advocates are brought in to help them through the process and everything. But not every police department is like that. And that's why the documentation is so important. Right. Because if you have those specifics, then they, they can't not listen to you. Mm-hmm. They absolutely can't. Going back to the resources you, you mentioned, is there any specific resource or book or, or maybe even resource for friends of abused person that want to help? Um, there are so many books out there. And to be honest with you, you know, once you get past it and you get into survivor mode, um, a lot of times going back and just rereading all those types of books, it's, it's not, it's not in my wheelhouse. Mm. It's not something that, you know, that I'm, I read different books, (laughs) Harry Potter. (laughs) Uh, What I will say is there are some fantastic organizations out there that will listen such as and um if you just google domestic violence organizations you know in my area 
if you come to our website, victimsvoice.app, we have resources listed per state. But these are organizations, I would say, the larger organizations tend to fund bigger projects. Find a smaller grassroots organization in your area. They won't have necessarily the funding to support you financially, but they will be able to boots on the ground, help you get connected to the resources that you need. Mm-hmm. And they're very willing to do so. Um, you know, in, in Mercer County, New Jersey, where, where we are speaking right now, Women's Space is connected with so many different organizations and they have a whole host of, of resources available to them. They work directly with prosecutors' offices and law enforcement. Um, they have crisis shelters to make sure that you get in a safe space. Hmm. Um, you know, so. Okay. Mm-hmm. What will this country look like for women in five years from now? You know, I thought a lot about that question and it's really hard to say. <laughs> I think that Does it depend on the election. Well, yes and no. Um, you know, the elections will be what they're going to be. I think there is definitely more of a movement in women, especially standing up and saying enough. There's an organization called One in Six, uh, the number one in the number six, and they're. They're specifically focused on men going through domestic violence because mm. one in six men are also victims of domestic violence. Uh, and we're seeing more and more people come out and talk about their stories. Um, we're seeing more and more people standing up and saying, I'm not going to put up with this. Unfortunately, in a lot of places, uh, law enforcement and legal and you know, our, our laws and legislation haven't quite caught up with all of that yet. So that's really, I think, the combination of changing legislation and um, the groundswell of societal change of saying enough, because mm-hmm. you can change all the laws you want, but until society embraces it, it's really not going to change a whole lot. I will say that culture, you know, we're a melting pot country as much as some of our current administration would not like it to be. Um, We are a melting pot. And in that melting pot comes a lot of cultural and religious uh, norms that really do promote an environment for domestic violence. And so I think a lot of the change needs to come from there as well. So... In recent months, there were a lot of talk about toxic masculinity. Do you think that domestic violence has anything to do with with that? I think it's a culture as a whole. My husband will say stuff like, oh, you're my superhero. And I always say back to him, no, I'm your super shero. <laughs> because there's he, there's the masculine form of uh-huh. things in absolutely every space of our language it's so ingrained in our language and we're just talking about male and female here we're not even talking about transgender you know the lgbtq community which sees an astronomical amount of domestic violence and there's a space where they feel even more uncomfortable coming forward with it because they're already being harassed 
for being considered quote unquote different. Um, and then if they show any sign of weakness, that's just going to um, hurt the cause, if you will. Um, that's that's a horrendous way to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish I had? Um, I just think that there's so much desperation and hopelessness and sadness and depression around domestic violence. Um, but there is a way out. And if we all work together rather than siloed, but we all really work together to help those that need it, really look inward. How are we communicating outward? Are we allowing for an environment of this? Um, what can we do as individuals that have made it on the other side to help those that haven't quite made it yet get there? Um, because you can have a new life. You can not live with PS, uh, PTSD anymore. You can learn to truly love again. If I may, I just, that made me thought of another question. Um, as an abuser, and maybe in your earlier days, were you sort of ashamed to talk about it? Did you wish the society would have been more open to address the question of abuse? Or did you feel, you know, welcomed? Um, I honestly haven't talked about it really publicly, except for the last few years. I think, you know, Me Too has raised awareness. It's allowed for the conversation to come in. It hasn't moved the needle the way it should, but it has allowed for conversation and awareness. And I think that's really vital. Um, but I would caution that a lot of people just don't want to talk about it. it. It's so personal and so raw that until they get to a certain point, they may or may not ever want to talk about it. And that's okay. You know, it, it's not, well, you're not a survivor unless you're ready to talk about it. Uh, you know, I've been in a very good place for a very long time. It just wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, there wasn't a need for me to talk about it. There is now. Um, there is a need for me to be that voice now. Before, I didn't need to be. And that was okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sherry. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. And uh, we will go and check your application. Where do people find it? You can find us on social media. Our handle in all social platforms is Victim's Voice App. Or you can find us on the web at victimsvoice.app. Thank you so much. Thank you.